This week, we're in North Carolina with Joe Gibbs. You're competitive, you want to win. It was like you were high on something. One of the greatest football coaches of all time, and now owner of one of NASCAR's best teams. It's a totally different world. I'd only coach football. His three championships with Washington came with enormous sacrifice. What you've second-guessed the most in your life was the time away from right. family. And his mid-career move to auto racing got off to a rocky start. I told everybody I was looking for a different place to throw up. You know what I mean? I'm saying, man. But Gibbs has persevered through every struggle, and he opens up about the tragic death of his son. That was such a long, drawn-out process for J.D. He just gradually got things taken away from him. Before we begin, just a heads up, our 2019 interview took place before Washington opted to change its name to the Commanders, so forgive any references to the former name. We'll start off this episode of the In-Depth Podcast with Gibbs reflecting on his childhood. So I actually wanted to start it off by having a little bit of fun. Um, in doing some of the preparation for today, I saw you used to get in a bit of trouble when you were growing up. And I wanted to take you back to some we're of those moments. We're not going back and, that far. I want to get you to recall <laughs> what comes to mind. Uh, the first one being an easy one. So you're in school, and uh, we're getting a number of parking tickets. What was your solution to uh, getting out of it? Actually, me and, a, me and a friend, I won't bring up names so I don't get them in trouble. But we, we got together, and we said, hey, let's just buy an old car which we did for like, honestly, in those days, like 150 bucks, we bought this old Chevy. And we just take it then and park it all over the campus. <laughs> we didn't register it in our name or anything. And so this thing had about 100 tickets, you know. Uh, but that was one of our solutions to the ticket problem at San Diego State. And I understand when people were uh, sleeping, you guys used to have some fun in the uh, alleys? I had one fr friend of mine that used to visit all the quarter beer deals and he would kind of get wound up and have a few beers and he would come home at night and the back alley had everybody's trash cans out there and I would be laying in bed and I would hear him coming hitting the trash cans all the way down the alley <laughs> then he would just pull up sometimes and just get out of the car and it would still be rolling <laughs> You know what I mean? So we have fun with that, but I can't believe you got, got into our background and picked that up. And you guys used to play like street bumper cars uh, well, back in the day too, didn't that you? That was, yeah, with that car. I mean, then we had our other cars down there that we didn't fool around with. That thing, though, was really, and I got to be honest, uh, at the end of the year, we just, I think we parked it on the side of the road and we were gone. And I don't know what all happened to it, but uh, that was our solution to all the parking tickets. You once got into some hot water over uh, tipping over, uh, was it a lifeguard stand? Well, that was, that was all the way back in high school, and all the football guys were in the pool, swimming pool, and there was, <laughs> was a lifeguard there that just irritated everybody. And so happened to be one day we climbed the, lights, the, the life guard stand there, chucked him in the pool, and that got us in some trouble, so I didn't get to go to the ceremony for graduation <laughs> with my parents. Oh, really? <laughs> um, one more uh, story for you that I thought was funny. You hear uh, about a house on a three-acre farm 
um, take it from there. The farm, you got, you got into that one. That was at San Diego State. And so uh, four of us, you know, we were looking around because you could rent an apartment, obviously. But we found this farm, it was about three acres, and it was up for lease. And so we leased this farm, and I remember the original discussion with all four of us that said, now listen, said we're gonna take care of this place, this thing's gonna be, you know, we don't want people coming around here, no parties or anything, it's gonna be just a nice place for us to, to, to live our senior year. And that lasted for a little bit. <laughs> it kind of went berserk after that. We had everything at the farm. It was called the farm. And, you know, whether it was parties or whether it was all kinds of wild things. And, and there were a couple of pigs? Yeah, well, that was a separate issue, yes. We wound up, but we said, hey, what the heck is the farm? we got to have some animals here. And there's, there was a pig farm right outside of San Diego, and that was a night adventure. Let me say this. You ever try to catch a pig? Those things, man, you get down on your knees, they'll run flat over you. And so we did wind up with, with, with two pigs. And, you know, it started out, everybody took care of them. We would go over to the local markets and stuff and get, you know, fresh, you know, um, vegetables and stuff and feed them. And then it got to a point where, you know, one of the guys would let them out and they would be in the house and a little bit of everything. And didn't you find out about them on the news? Or? They got out and got on the freeway there, which was a huge freeway. And I was studying at a friend's house, you know, and so uh, all of a sudden I look up and they said, yeah, we have an unusual thing here. So these, these pigs got out and they're on the freeway and they had all lanes blocked. And you see, all of a sudden you look and you see this little pig look around the corner from this pillar. <laughs> and so I went, oh my gosh, the pigs got out. And so, uh, of course, that was illegal. You weren't supposed to have them, I think, in the county. So, uh, again, that was one where... Did they ever I, find out? It was no, they never found out. And I never went back, <laughs> I put it that way. Um, wanted to get into some of the tough moments from your kind of professional career and how you got through them. The first one being um, 1978, you get this great opportunity, or so you think at the time, to be offensive coordinator for the Tampa Bay Bucks. Right. Uh, what ends up happening? Yeah, I was really excited about that. I was going back to coach with Coach McKay, who I had coached with at Southern California in college. And through a wild set of circumstances, they wanted me to go work out Doug Williams who was at Grambling, and they were thinking about taking him as a, as a quarterback. And that was a great experience for me because we came back and Coach McKay, who deserves the credit, drafted Doug in the first round. And I think he was the second black quarterback to ever be taken. He could have been the first, I, I, I could be off on that. And so that started off that season and um, you know, we got off to a horrible start, and then Doug got his jaw broke, and they actually wired his jaw so he could still play. But that whole season just, you know, that was a tough time for me and for everyone. I think we won maybe two or three games. And so after that season, it was a huge decision for me because Don Coriel had went back, who I had played, play, played for, 
and then I had coached for at the Cardinals and had a close relationship with. He had taken over the Chargers. And uh, I can still remember, I said, God, don't have him call me unless you want me to go. <laughs> and so he called me the next day. And when I talked about that job, though, it was kind of backing up in my career because I was going to go from being the coordinator to really coaching the backs. Correct me if I'm wrong, you felt like for the first time in your life at that point, you were turning your back on a difficult situation. Well, I, I felt like I was backing up in my career, which, you know, you say career, I mean, I'm coaching. But it is a career, and it was really important for me, and I had a desire at that point to be a head coach. I really wanted that, and I felt like the coordinator's position at Tampa would lead to that, which normally it does. Instead, everything fell apart. And then I wind up going to the Chargers, which, to be quite truthful, wound up being <laughs> probably the greatest thing that ever happened to me. Um, there was a wild set of circumstances there that took place. It really kind of helped change my life, too. I had a spiritual father in Fayetteville, Arkansas, George Therrell. It was very important to me. I was, when I was coaching at Arkansas, a little Sunday school teacher took me under his wing, and he became my spiritual father. You know, he would write me letters every week and kind of follow me. So when I made that tough decision to go back to the Chargers and leave Tampa, I said, I, I need to see George. I wanted to go and spend some time with him and just pray with him. And so I got on an airplane. We get snowbound in Fort Smith. And I was so frustrated, I said, I, I kept saying, God, what are you doing? Uh, and correct me if I'm wrong, but it seems like as close to a breakdown as you've ever had when this flight gets diverted and... Well, what happened when the, when the, when the plane got diverted, I still said, I'm, I'm getting to Fayetteville, that, that's it. I walked out front and there were two guys renting a car and they said they're going to drive to Fayetteville. <laughs> I think I said it something like this, I'm going with you. And I took my bags and just threw them in the back seat, the bag I had. And they kind of looked at me, I and mean, we get in the car. I don't know where they were from, but they had never driven in snow, I can <laughs> tell you that. They're, they are all over the place. And we get about a mile down this freeway, and I said, hey, pull over. <laughs> Let me out. I think they were happy to do that. I took my bags, climbed over a center divider on the freeway, get on the other side, I hitchhiked my way back to the airport. And so I go in, I sit down, I got snow on me, you know, and I said, okay, I'm not going to be able to get to see George. And again, I was questioning God. And so I'm sitting there waiting for my flight back to Tampa. And I looked over on the counter and there was a Bible sitting there. How many times have you seen that in an airport? That didn't happen very often. I grabbed it and I'd been studying the first chapter of James. I turned to it. And without me saying a word, a young guy about my age tapped me on the shoulder. And he said, I claimed that chapter in my life six months ago. And I went, what, really? And he reeled off a story that paralleled mine almost exactly. It was a job he wanted. He had taken it. You have to take a big test. He went through all this process and everything. And he said, you know, in the end, he said, I just said to God, God, 
you know what I want in this job, but I'm going to turn that over to you, and I'm just going to trust you. Now, he's saying all this without me saying hardly a word. I got on that plane, I said the same thing he did. I said, God, you know, you want, I want to be a head coach, but listen, I'm turning this over to you. I'm tired of trying to make this happen. I'm just going to put it in your hands. I go to San Diego. The person who was the coordinator there, two weeks later, got a head job in the NFL and left. Don Coriel called me in, and he didn't make me the coordinator, but he said, I want you to work with the quarterbacks. And of course, we had Dan Fouts. <laughs> we had great receivers. You have Don Coriel, this very progressive coach that throws the football. And it was the perfect environment to look good on offense. And two years later, I was the head coach of the Washington Redskins. So it was a, it was a real time in my life that, you know, I, I said to people, and I use it as a testimony, I said a lot of people could say, well, that just happened. That just didn't happen. God orchestrated that, and I was blessed to have a chance then to be a head coach. You've an 0-5 start to your NFL head coaching yes. career. How close did you think you were to being fired? Very close, very close. It was traumatic for our entire family. You know, Coy, JD, we all moved there and started our new life. I said, man, this is going to be awesome. And I really didn't understand, I think, a lot about getting a chance to be a head coach because I looked at it as I'm going to get my chance if, I, if I'm not successful, but at least I got a chance. I went into it with that idea. Then you go and recruit you know, all the coaches, so they move all their families there. You got the Mr. Cook, who had taken a gamble with me, who had never been a head coach. You got Bobby Bethard, who's putting his career on the line. The general a fantastic manager, yeah. general manager. And he was recommending to Mr. Cook me. Then you got the fan base in Washington. Next thing I know, I'm going, oh my gosh, this is, there is a lot here that's depending on me to do a job. And then you start out 0-5. I, I kidded everybody. I said, I was just looking for a different way home at night. <laughs> and, and, and what's funny is, uh, you know, Mr. Cook, I think, comes to you er, early on and says, you know, he ruined the last head coach by getting so involved. Yeah. He's going to stay out of it. And then, you know, his son has since come out and said his dad was ready to uh, fire you. Well, yeah. I, I think, what, think what happened really at 0-5, you got to realize, I thought I was going to be the first guy to ever coach in the NFL get fired and never win a game. <laughs> and, so, and so at 0-5, I still remember I was sitting there in the afternoon working on football, and uh, I got a phone call, and they said, Mr. Cook wants to stop by and see you. And I went, you know, you can imagine the owner. And Mr. Cook was a super smart, tough guy, okay, great businessman. And so anyway, he comes out for a visit, and I said, this could be it. And honestly, when I look back on it, Mr. Cook was at his best when things were at their worst. Really? That's kind of the way he dealt with things. He always had these sayings. And I still remember in that meeting, we talked for a little while, and he goes, you know what they're calling me when I leave that stadium? <laughs> I said, yes, sir, Mr. Cook, they're calling me the same thing. <laughs> we go out there, and he goes, yeah, I guess we're together on this. He goes like that. He goes... I'm going to lay down and bleed a while, and then we're going to get up and fight again. He goes just like that. And then he goes like this. He had these books. I still remember, and he goes like this. Guys, got this windfall. 
$16 million. I got to go figure out with the taxes what to do with this money. And he started for the door. And it, one of the favorite things he used to say to me all the time, he turned around and he goes, I'm going to go try and make some money so you can throw it away. <laughs> he laughed. But he was, he was just uh, very bright, uh, very tough. He said to me, he goes, I think you need to do this, this, and this. And many times he would do that, and he would stick that finger out at me. But he would always, in the end, here's what he would say in the end. He would go, look, I ruined my first coach by making him do things. I'm not going to ruin you. You need to make up your mind of what you're going to do. And I want to jump back and talk about uh, your family uh, growing up uh, for, for uh, a bit, because obviously if your mom or dad had the opportunity to retire, or would have loved the opportunity to retire at the age uh, you, you first did. Uh, it was your dad, JC, who was uh, a policeman, and I think later worked in the legal department for a, a bank. Your yeah. mom, Winnie, who worked at a, a phone company, and then your younger brother, Jim. How would you describe your dad? My dad, uh, his dad, had left the family, and so they were pretty much on their own with, you know, his mother and siblings. You know, it was a tough, tough way to grow up. And uh, my dad was a tough dude. I mean, he was, you know, he was not afraid of anything. And he wound up, you know, going into um, uh, to being a deputy sheriff there in a small town, Moxville, North Carolina, and started his career in, you know, security and police work and was a sheriff there, eventually was, um, Worked the highway patrol for a little bit, was the malt beverage inspector for that county, and then eventually when we all moved to California, went to work for a bank. But I always describe my dad as a real character, um, not afraid of anything, felt like he could whip everybody, and probably could. He was, and, and so everybody in town liked my dad. But there were times where my dad was, you know, he'd come in with a cast on, and he'd been in fights or you know, got shot once and he got in a huge wreck. How did he get shot Well, once? he shot, actually it was an accident type thing where they were out with um, some of his buddies and they were, uh, I think uh, in those days it was bootlegging and stills and all that kind of stuff and it was an accident, I think he got shot. But then he had a huge wreck and... Crashing his patrol car going 80 miles yeah, an hour he, into a telephone pole. Yeah, that, that was scary for everybody because he had serious injuries, and it was probably almost a year before he got back. He was chasing uh, a bootlegger, and car got away from him, went into a telephone pole, and it was a serious wreck. And he, he was laid up for a long time. You come home uh, one day, you just got in a fight with a neighborhood kid who was bigger than you. Why does he make you? go back out to he finish just, the fight. Yeah, I the remember team. he was standing on the porch and you know, I came down the street. <laughs> I think I was crying and I don't know how old I was. I'm guessing like seven, eight, something like that. And so my dad was on the front porch and he goes just like this, he goes. <laughs> <laughs> and I went, I looked at him, you know what I mean? He goes, back up the street and finish this. <laughs> you know what I mean? I think I went back up and got whipped again. Uh, 
guess you were playing baseball yeah. and umpire. Yeah. Uh, did something to rub your dad the wrong way. Yeah, I was kind of on the side warming up a pitcher. And, you know, I was, wasn't in the game. And so um, they started this big rhubarb out on the field. And I yelled something. And the third baseman, who I kind of knew, he's kind of cross town. I kind of knew him. And so he said something to me. And so we get into it. And so I still remember we're wrestling. We're trying to punch each other and stuff. And we're on the ground. And all of a sudden, I felt this arm around my neck like this because I was on top, you know, and it was the coach from the other team. And about that time, he had his arm around it, and all of a sudden, he was gone. And I looked, and it was my dad had come out of the stands, and he, <laughs> he had hit him. And then all the attention went away from me and the fight that we were having to my dad and that manager. And so the funny thing was, I get home, and I heard, I heard this. It was just classic, my dad. He was over, and he was leaning on the fence with a neighbor next door. And so I get out of the car, and I start walking to the house. And I my dad goes like this. He goes, yeah, he said, uh, me and the kid, he said, we had to take care of a few guys today over at the baseball game. So that was my dad. That's, what, that's the way my dad dealt with things. You crash your car, end up at a juvenile detention center. Yeah. Um, what happens when your dad shows up? That, that was not pretty. So I, uh, my folks were out of town. I just got my driver's license and I'm with a couple of buddies. And we did a thing or two we shouldn't have done. And um, I wind up in juvenile hall in Long Beach. And my folks weren't home, so they tried to call my folks, weren't there. So I stayed in there all night. And so the next morning, it was like about 10 o'clock, my mom and dad show up. And they take me into the superintendent's office. And so my mom and dad are over here, sitting in a chair. I'm over here. And this superintendent starts in on my dad. And he goes, this kid was out after 11 o'clock. He was doing, you know, and he gets about two minutes into this thing. And my dad sprang out of the chair, across the room, grabbed me by the throat, took me back over the, <laughs> the chair. <laughs> he's got me in a corner like this, and he's going, raised under the arm of the law, I'm going to kill you right here. <laughs> and so he choked me. About that time, the superintendent is trying to get him off with my mom. And they finally get my dad off of me. And I, I thought to myself, this ain't going to happen again. You know what I mean? And, and there was immediate correction there. And so when he got me home, he says, hey, I kind of lost my poise there. But he, he said, we don't want any more of that. And I says, no, sir, we're not getting any more of that. But thank goodness for my mom and the superintendent, because they saved me, I think. You put in your book that your um, mom, I guess because your dad would drink heavily at times, that your mom would have you and your brother play outside to just avoid witnessing some yeah. of it. What would happen when he was at his worst? No, I, I think my dad just had issues there. And there were times, he, he was always a dad. He was not, you know, he, he around our house and everything. It was just that he had some issues there with drinking. And so when that would happen, I kind of was spoiled, I said to people, because my mom, would always insulate me and my brother. 
you know, they would get, she would give us some money, go to the show, do whatever, go to my aunt and uncles, you know what I mean? She would kind of, and so I kind of was really spoiled in a way because I got almost anything I want, you know. But my mom was just, she was just a, really a saint. She just always protected us. My mom took care of us and watched us, and my dad was always the provider, mm -hmm. even though he had some issues there. So fast forward to uh, your time with the Redskins where you had a ton of success over the course of the 12 seasons as uh, discussed. You've said um, what you've second-guessed the most in your life was the time away from right. family when you were coaching. Why? Because I think I could have done it differently. Coaching is every minute that you have, there's something else you can do to be getting ready for the next game. We have film and video stuff, so you always can be studying something. And so the tough thing about coaching is if you got 10 minutes, you stick something in there, you need to be doing this, that, you're getting ready for short yardage, goal line, whatever it might be, working with the staff. And for me, it kind of wound up just late into the night, you know, before we finished things. And we all kind of on offense did everything together. And that takes a long time to go through short yardage and goal line and third down and all the things you do. So I wound up, it, it wound up just consuming so much time. And so I really, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesdays, didn't go home and then, I had Thursday night was my um, night with Pat, and we would go and do the TV show that we did and go out to eat. But then I had Friday night, try and catch up on your sleep and go to the football games for my kids. And so you're, you wind up with that. You know, you're, you're, you're competitive, you wanna win. So many people count on you. You're driven. And I used to be like, you know, on our, our Monday nights and Tuesday nights and Wednesday nights. It was like I, it was like you were high on something. You were so worried about the game plan and working and, and you know, so it was, you're driven by that. And so I guess in explaining that, I think what I felt like I could do is do it differently now. When I came back the second time, mm -hmm. I tried to do it differently, <laughs> and it didn't work. I wound up right back in the same place again. So you say you could have done it differently, but what's the likelihood if you had, you could have had the same amount of success that you did? That's always the question, okay? So do you back off something, and you're not as successful, you know, and you lose games? That's always the question. I don't think we have the answer to that. Um, but I do feel like I, I know that a lot of other real successful coaches do it differently. Do they? Uh, yeah, and spend less time there. They told me Coach Landry was, that was unbelievable. I went out to coach Coach Landry. I look over there on the sideline. That guy, he had that hat and that suit. He just looked like he stepped right out of GQ. And I, me, I've gained 20 pounds. My eyes are in the back of my head. <laughs> so they swore to me he got in early, and the man structured their defense. He had a creative offense. I don't know if you remember or not. Remember how they used to shift and all that kind of stuff? He did all of that. And they said he 
sat in the special teams meetings too. So here's a guy that was probably really and truly just brilliant in football, and he swore he went home at 9 o'clock. And so I'm sure that there was other ways to do it. It's just that our way, the way that I felt comfortable with, and um, I just couldn't make it go any other way. Why did you grow to hate clocks? Uh, I, I wasn't, you know, somebody that had a lot of rules and regulations, and I guess clocks were kind of a part of that, you know? So obviously I, I wanted things done on time and all that, but uh, our clock for the coaches, we used to laugh. We first go around at Old Redskin Park. The trash trucks came at 3 in the morning. <laughs> and so we'd be working, and I, I'd hear, and there'd be, you know, there'd be <laughs> trash trucks outside. And I, I would tell you the staff, i go, well, guys, I guess it's time to go to bed. <laughs> when you were coaching, uh, uh, what was the typical Monday through Sunday schedule from just an hour perspective yeah. and sleep perspective? Lots of times, if, uh, if we won games, I would give the players two days off, Monday, Tuesday, and they would come back Wednesday. Sometimes Mondays, uh, particularly if we lost games, we would come in, have a light workout, watch the film, get all that out of the way. And then Monday night was a long night because we started the game plan and the for preparations. You. Yeah, for the coaching staff. And so, and then Tuesday was the day off for the players always. And so that was real hard work day and for the coaches, and it was late night because you're trying to put, finalize the first part of the game plans and uh, first, second, second down and third down and uh, all of that. Then Wednesday, the players come in because that starts in early morning meetings. The players go home 5 o'clock or so in the afternoon after practice. And um, then it's late night because you're finishing the next phase of the game plan. And then we'd repeat that on Thursday, pretty much the same thing. So Thursday night, we would try to have everything done after practice on Thursday. Fridays, uh, come in, do all the final preparation stuff and everything, practice and everything, and then try and go home Friday afternoon right after practice. And then Saturday was travel day if we were playing someplace, or if we were in town, I would come in, rewrite the game plan, we'd go through our walkthroughs and everything in town, and then we stayed at a hotel there in town. So that's kind of the schedule during the week. How much sleep do you think you were averaging? It's funny, I really, <clears throat> I don't think I, I needed a lot of sleep. Uh, I took a nap during the day, I left that out. So at lunchtime, I'd try and get 20 minutes or something. But there was, it, it's like, like I said, you're high, you know, you're, it's so important and you're pushing and you, you, you can't relax until you get things done and <clears throat> you're hoping to have a good game plan. So <clears throat> it's kind of like you had energy and you were after it. How do you think the hours, if at all, uh, uh, affected your health? I think uh, towards the end of that first go around um, coaching, it became obvious, I think, that I had something was off and I wound up, you know, realizing after I did the, had my checkup and stuff that I was diabetic and that could have been 
you know, certainly that's late night, eating the wrong stuff. I Wait, mean, how, how true I, is it that you would eat on occasion three <laughs> giant candy bars, a dozen not, donuts in a sitting, and then wash that, it down with the true. soda? No, not three, but you sure? I would say this. <laughs> I would say this. Uh, you know, we have a good dinner brought in, and then we go back to work, and I would say this about 12 o'clock at night. Uh, I won't say what the candy was because I. Uh, but anyway, about 12 o'clock at night, they had at least half a pound of whatever it was, and I would kind of start eating that thing, and I would eat a huge candy bar probably about 12 o'clock at night. I did do that. I didn't watch myself the way I should. What, uh, what so. did you find out, though, when you went to the Mayo? Uh, so you're feeling worse and worse that yeah. last 92-93 season before you retire, um, you go to the Mayo Clinic, and what do they tell you? No, they just said, you know, hey, look, you're 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 going to be diabetic because you need to lose this amount of weight and stuff. And I tried to do that, but it didn't change anything. And so, uh, you know, but really, honestly, it may have been good for me because just like I said, I had a tendency. I was a sweet guy. I was after stuff on Saturday mornings. We had a donut guy, and they had, they, man, they these. <laughs> These whole wheat glazed donuts. I mean to tell you, those things. I would stack up like three of them. I'd be doing that game plan. Man, that, that was one of the greatest things that ever happened to me, eating, eating those donuts. At least and, they were whole wheat. And so, yeah, and so we had a donut guy. We had all kinds of guys. You know, we had um, one of the local um, guys that owned the restaurant there would cook stuff for us and bring over um, stuff on, th on Thursday afternoons after practice and everything. Well, but I was out of control when it came to eating stuff. And then I said it probably worked out best for me because I didn't take care of myself. And now, if you're diabetic, you have to take care of yourself. It caused me to be much more disciplined. And I think it really helped me really in life. It's helped me with my health. NASCAR today, how would you best explain the issues the sport's having, in your opinion? I think uh, almost all sports uh, have struggled some, uh, you know, almost all sports when you look at it. And the, the reason being, I think, we, we just, the world is just uh, much more competitive. Think about all the sports and everything that people have can watch now and do, all the things you can do on a weekend. But I can honestly say to you that um, we've been blessed here with this race team. We got some of the biggest and best sponsors in the world. We have so much going for us with this sport. And I think right now, um, our, the France family and Jim France now, um, taking over things, we've been real creative with our racing. We have segment racing now, which has totally changed. We changed our playoffs to more like a playoff schedule. We've made a lot of, I think, great decisions. And I think our sport, to be quite truthful, I think our best years may still be in front of us. And for us here, we're trying to take some money out of the sport because it does cost a lot to run the cars. So we're, do we're making a lot of good decisions, I think, to reduce the amount of money that it takes to race the cars. That way the sponsor doesn't have to pay as much. And so we got a lot of things like that. It's like all, I say to everybody, pro sports, the two I've been in, change at roughly 30% a year. The NFL did, 
they got caps now, they shorten the draft, they got all these things going on. The NFL is changing, the rule changes, all the things with concussions, all the stuff they got going on. Uh, over here, it's the same thing. Right now, we're redoing some of the, our stadiums. Our numbers were up in Daytona, they were up in Phoenix, brand new facilities that they're doing. Right. So it, it's, um, I, I just think it's going through a period where there's, it's intense competition right now from a sporting standpoint, and, and people have so much they can do. Mm -hmm. And then TV is so good, okay, that they like staying home on their couch with the Coke. And um, so it's all those competitive things. And there's part of the challenge, though, t TV and just the declining audience across the board, 2018 season, 27 of the 31 non-delayed cup races saw TV ratings declines from the season prior. 26 posted decade low or all-time low numbers. Mm -hmm. How do you think you, you fix it? Okay, well, I think we're on our way to fixing it right now. Daytona, they completely rebuilt the stadium there and everything mm -hmm. in Daytona. It's a pristine, beautiful place. I think we were up 8%. Mm -hmm. We turn around Phoenix, I think we're up 4%. I think, you know, best I know, I think three of our four races this year were up. And so I think it's part of, we got a new package we're racing right now to appeal to the fans. It's a new um, high downforce package that puts the cars closer together, more passing. And like I said, we put in segment racing. I, I think this year our numbers are up. The next two years, uh, track contracts are up, the race team alliance is coming up, TV mm -hmm. uh, contracts are coming up, will all need to be renegotiated. How do you think the next two years will impact the sport? I think very, very important. I think there's a lot going on right now, and the things that you just mentioned are all coming up. Our TV package is farther out, okay, but that's also a huge deal. If you think about our sport, uh, our TV package is, you know, you, you don't have big companies um, like Toyotas and Chevrolet investing in a sport and doing 10-year deals unless what? The sport's showing that it's going to, they believe in it. Mm -hmm. I think the next two years are going to be critical. I think we're working extremely hard on it. We're in meetings constantly talking about you know, what the car of the future is going to look like, modernizing the car, taking money out of the sport so that it's more economical to race. Um, so there's a lot going on in a sport right now, but, but let me say this. The two sports I've been in, there's a lot going on every year. And that's part of pro sports. They're constantly trying to adjust and give the fans what they want. We got a fan base, it's unbelievable. Battle-tested. We have fan day here at Joe Gibbs Racing. All the fans gonna get on that weekend is an autograph of all of our drivers and riders and all that are gonna be here. They stay here, some of them, overnight. There's a lot going on right now in our sport. And it's a big responsibility, but the people here built this, really. Wasn't me and Coy and JD and all the original guys. Um, it's family owned, but there's a huge responsibility to all the people. We got people here, we give out awards every year at Christmas. We give out 20 year awards a bunch of them, and we got some people been here 27 years, seven of those original 17 are still here. Wow. And so um, 
I, I'm just saying that it's a family business, you know, small family business, but it's hugely important to all of us. I love it, the fact we get to go every weekend and try and beat the best people in the world racing cars right. and we're racing NASCAR. And I'm going to ask you about some of that coming up. I wanted to first touch on uh, Toyota. You wanted a company that you could have a relationship with as opposed mm -hmm. to one that was just writing a check. How much was it a game changer for you, the relationship with Toyota? Actually, GM was great for us. And when you think about it, uh, I was a football coach. I didn't have anything. I didn't have a driver, race shop, and nothing. And so we went and sat down with GM, and they said, hey, we want to be a part of this. We welcome you into the sport. And they stepped up as our, our manufacturer. And we were 15 years with them and won three championships over there. And so we got so much um, that we owe to GM. What happened in that process, though, they got some heavyweights over there. They got uh, Richard Childress, won a bunch of championships for them. And then you got Rick Hendricks in that group. And Rick has won you know, all kinds of championships. So we were kind of setting as third in line, if that. And so when Toyota got in the sport and um, they started the right way and they started the truck series, but when it became obvious they were going to move up to Cup, I think our discussion with them, we kind of said, well, this would be a chance for us to maybe be a premier team with somebody and a great manufacturer like Toyota. And they have been just absolutely, you talk about a partnership and developing relationships with people. They love racing inside of Toyota. And of course, they're a premier company in first class, and we've developed a real close partnership, and it's been awesome. I believe they build the Joe Gibbs racing engines in Costa Mesa, yeah. California. I don't think at the time that had ever been done before. Your initial reaction when that was proposed and how you eventually came around to it? With us, we were doing our own motors when we first got in a relationship with them. But then um, they have a, uh, a complex out in Southern California. And it's dedicated to motors and performance out there. And it became obvious they can, <laughs> they can do a better job than what we could do here. And so that was our reason for switching. Uh, we still do our Xfinity motors here. So we still have our motor room and, and do some of the motors for our Xfinity and for some other people. But um, they're first class in everything they do. And the whole company is very competitive. And of course, America's a big deal to them. They're really building more parts for their cars here in America than any other manufacturer. How's the relationship evolved over time? Really, what happens in a relationship like this is you go through tough times and you go through the real good times. But those tough times test you. And we've gone through that with Toyota. We had a, a situation for, uh, for a while there where we were having some um, quality control issues with our motors, and we weren't you know, performing very well. Um, 2015, we had a horrible year. Just, we made some decisions here about not building a chassis for 2015. We thought there were a lot of changes and we didn't want to get caught up in that. So we made some decisions here that really hurt us in 15. You go through a whole year like that and that was our fault. And when you look at that, 
that's what tests you. And what's happened with Toyota, every single time we've been through something tough, they, they, they just are right at our back, and it's been the same for us. And we're long-term with them, and, um, you know, you fight through those, t those tough times that really test you, but you also realize you come out the other side of that knowing you got a real partner there and somebody looks at things. They're not looking to blame somebody. They're looking to fix it. And we've been getting whipped on the racetrack at times. And, and their approach and our approach is, let's go to work. We need to go to work and catch these guys. Before you retired the first go-around from the NFL, I think the couple years or so leading into that, you were plotting out what you wanted to do in racing. Um, what exactly were you looking into? When the boys came along, J.D. and Coy, both of them, had, they loved everything with a motor on it. And then we would go to the races. You know, I would take them, we'd go to the races, and we developed friendships in drag racing and um, NASCAR and what have you. And so um, then J.D. graduated from school. He was the first to graduate. And he said, Dad, I'd rather do something in racing than I would in football. And I said, well, I said, what we can do we don't have anything, but we can put a dream on a piece of paper and see if we can sell it to somebody. <laughs> and so the second phone call I made was Norm Miller at Interstate Batteries. And uh, I kid Norm this, to this day. I said, you're the only guy that had either enough guts or were dumb enough to do this. But I showed up on his doorstep, and he goes, now, who's your driver? And I said, we don't have one. <laughs> and he said, now, where's your race shop? And I said, we don't have one. He goes, I said, Norm, this is a dream on a sheet of paper. And can you believe Norm was willing to step out? Uh, two days later, we talked on the phone. He said, let's do this. And our first year, we leased a small building over on Harris Boulevard here. We had 17 people, raced one car. I thought that's the way it would always be. J.D., Dave Alpern, who's now our president, and Todd Meredith, um, all went down there to work. They didn't even know what to do. They were just out of college. You know, and um, Don Meredith was a good friend of mine. We'd started some things in the Christian ministry and stuff. And I said, Don, would you go down there and kind of oversee this thing when we started? And that's how we started. I understand uh, early on your number one principle was budget. Uh, how so? When we got in racing, obviously people go, you're doing what? Mm -hmm. <laughs> Kenny, racing? What are you talking about? That's not a business. And so when we got in this, I was kind of scared. So Norm, we got our first sponsorship stuff. And uh, about six months into that thing, I get a phone call from Don Meredith, who was kind of overseeing everything from a business standpoint. And he said, I need to meet with you. So we go to eat at the Palm. And so I'm about... <laughs> take a bite of my swordfish. <laughs> and he goes, he goes, we're $250,000 in the hole. And I went, what? I think that's the number he said. And I went, are you kidding me? I said, this is, uh, I had absolute panic. And, and so I told him, I said, hey, listen, we got to go back. We put everything underneath Jimmy Maycar, who was our crew chief at that point. 
made some changes mm -hmm. and we said we got to make it with this you know we can't we can't go farther in debt so from that point on you know um, we just started working real hard watch the budget and um, started building things slowly first three years I think you only win one cup race how concerned were you at that point I was concerned after the first year what? because it's a big step <clears throat> financially uh, you're stepping into this and you know uh, <laughs> you don't know if you've got enough money to make it go and do you belong I mean it's a totally different world I was scared to death to come and do something else I'd only coach football and so when we stepped over here the whole first year uh, we didn't win a race and I think we finished second maybe at one Bristol I think with Dale Jarrett and so we go into the second year and it was traumatic I, I was I couldn't tell you how uptight I was and what took place there at Daytona the second year was kind of life-changing for all of us and was one of the greatest experiences anybody could have in those days it was more kind of freewheeling with the pit crews and everything so after the first year we didn't do very well we said we'll put JD changing tires and so you know our very first race is the Daytona 500 our Super Bowl that race starts the next thing you know man we're up front a lot and I go oh my gosh <laughs> you know we're, 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 we're gonna have a chance and then it dawned on me I said this thing's gonna come down the last pit stop <laughs> JD's changing tires it's our first race it's the Daytona 500 we're gonna have a chance to win I told everybody I was looking for a different place to throw up you know what I mean I'm saying man this is gonna be and so we tell this story because it really happened just like this we come in for the last pit stop and sure enough Dale's up front Dale Earnhardt's up front all the hitters they come in for that pit stop I knew how critical it was they go over the wall Todd and JD they change the front tire they go to the rear tire and JD hits about three lug nuts and they dropped the jack and the car's gone and he stood up and Todd was looked at him and Todd goes did you get those tight and JD goes I got three of them tight <laughs> and so Todd says can we make it on three and JD looks up at Jimmy Maycar our crew chief knowing that if he tells him we got loose wheels he's going to get killed he goes we're getting ready to find out it goes like that and can you believe it? that car goes back out there Dale won that race and we didn't even know where winter circle was we're running all over the place we don't even know what's going on and I think that race kind of verified to me and to all of us well maybe we belong so you get a call you alluded to this earlier you get a call from I think an old college buddy telling you about this Oklahoma opportunity because Ugh. of the booming oil business yeah. there um, to your wife's credit I think she discourages you from doing it what happens from there well <clears throat> I made a huge mistake in life um, God gives us his word the Bible and the topic he mentions most in his word is finances over 2,000 times because he knew we were going to struggle with what money and so <clears throat> I belong to him I give my life to Christ 
I wasn't studying the book. And the bottom line was, I got that job with the Redskins, and I said to myself, you know, I, I, I'm not making that much money. I've only got a three-year contract. Young coach, he said, I said, I've got to use this platform. I'm going to get rich. I wasn't willing to just trust God and coach. That's what he wanted me to do. And um, I tell everybody, I, I said, so if you're going to try and invest in something to get rich, <laughs> what do you invest in? I said, real estate. You can't lose in real estate. <laughs> Which that shows you how foolish I was. And so we got in this partnership. I did. And I kind of drug Pat. Uh, Any time in life that Pat and I have agreed on something, it's never been a mistake. It's when I kind of find a way to get her to do something where we get in trouble. And that's what happened with this partnership. Got in a partnership, and it was brutal. It was four and a half years of just misery. What was and, the lowest point? Um, when we first got in it, I, w I was still coaching. I was going to let those guys manage it. I was just going to be an investor in it. And then we started getting late notices. And when I went down after the season, we sat down with two attorneys and two accountants, and we started adding everything up. And this thing was deficiting at $35,000 a month in interest only. This thing was, I was bankrupt. And so that was the low point, you know, when I had that meeting. I remember getting down next to that bed in Norman, Oklahoma that night. The tears are rolling, and I said, God, I've been a fool. And so it was amazing to me, though, and going through that, the way Pat dealt with that. She had been easy for her to say, I told you so, or whatever. She was as strong as I'll get out. She said, hey, we're going to go through this together. And it, and it tested um, our whole family. The good thing I had going for myself we had talked Pat into getting into racing. Now, I'm not sure, sure she understood the size of what she was doing, but we did have agreement there. And so that was good. And from that point on, um, you know, the race team, who would have dreamed that it would take off the way it did? What was the lesson learned from the Oklahoma deal? I think that, first of all, I'm not that good of a businessman. I have to be real careful financially because I know that's not one of my strengths. I don't like sitting in meetings and going over numbers and stuff. I said, just give me the bottom line. <laughs> what do we owe? <laughs> and so, but, you know, and then JD was so good with all of that, and we dismiss him so much because JD was the, was the guy in all the meetings. He was very conservative, and he'd go, Dad, hey, he'd put that finger out and say, we can't do that. And he would stop us on things. And so that whole group, I think we, you know, we're, we're pretty conservative and we're, we're careful. Before I ask you about JD, I want to take you back to 1963. Uh, you just graduated San Diego State. You'd been dating your now wife, Pat, then girlfriend for uh, eight years. She is uh, off vacationing in Europe for part of the summer. Yep. Uh, why, when she gets back, did you realize you want to put a ring on it? 
because I missed her. <laughs> she was gone for, I think it was like two months or something, something crazy. And so when she came back, I, I just kind of felt like you know, this would be a good time for us to go ahead and get this thing done. And so uh, <laughs> it's one of the best things I've, I've, ever, uh, I've ever done. I think the best way to describe Pat, I was kind of complaining one day at work. JD was there. And I was complaining about Pat. Somehow we got you know, this or that in front of him. And he just said to me, he goes, she sacrificed her entire life for you. Went just like that. And I, I stopped and backed up. And I said, you're right. She has. She's been always the mother lion in the background. We're doing all this stuff, racing, football, all this. And she's been the steady person there that raised the boys and really kind of ran the show at the house when I was gone so much. It's one of those special relationships. We started going together very young, and we've kind of always been together and felt like you know we're the match. Earlier in life, one of the tougher times in uh, the relationship was uh, when Pat, I think unbeknownst to you, goes to get a CAT scan uh, without you knowing. Um, how did you find out? 1980, I came home from, I was co coaching at the Chargers as an assistant. And Pat was there at the house and she was crying and you could tell she was trying to hide it from me and she had hid it for several weeks because we hadn't finished the football season. And so when I eventually sat with her and talked to her, um, they had diagnosed her with an acoustic neuroma. It's a benign tumor, but it's a tumor behind your ear in this auditory canal here. And she was gonna have to have surgery. And <clears throat> so I think that was a, you know, a traumatic time for us. And knowing that how serious this was, um, had the surgery and then had somewhat of a setback with it afterwards. She'd had some more bleeding there, and it just caused all kinds of issues with her. And so it, you know, it affected one side of her face. At that time when she was having the complications and she goes back in for the second surgery, what about it made you say those hours were the toughest of your life at that point? It was horrible because she was in intensive care when they brought her out the second time and they didn't want to take the tube out. And boy, she was pounding that bed. She wanted that tube out of there. And man, I am like this. I'm going, you don't know what all's going on. But it was just a traumatic time for us, the whole family. And um, it was so hard for, for Pat. But it's amazing the way she deals with, with it. I think she cried pretty regularly for a long time after that. Um, what was the toughest part, in your opinion, of the recovery process? It affected everything because it was kind of hard for her balance-wise and everything <clears throat> because it affects, you know, kind of your, your whole balance. But I think the biggest thing was the, you know, the fact that uh, there was paralysis there and we had to fight through all the things that that affects. And she was such a champion and um, all kinds of doctors, doctor appointments, back and forth, just 
all the time, trying to get things squared away. And like I said, I'm not sure how many people could dealt with that the way she did. How do you think it impacted your marriage? I think it probably, if anything, brought us together uh, closer. I don't know if you're getting closer. I mean, um, but certainly I think when you go through tough things from a family standpoint, um, up until JD's sickness, that was the biggest thing that we had dealt with. Taylor got leukemia, which is one of our grandkids, but that was certainly at that point in our life, you know, um, we were around 40 years old, and for to have that happen was just awful. So I have to admit, when I was reading about this, I did laugh out loud a little bit. So after her hospital stay and recovery process, um, she comes home, and you'd left a mound of dirty laundry uh, for her. I, I, yeah, <laughs> I, we, uh, I think the boys, we just kind of stacked everything up in the corner. And then when we ran out of underwear, I just went and bought more. <laughs> because you didn't know how to do laundry, right? I don't know. I still don't know how to do laundry. You know, what do you mean? wash it with my hands or something. But no, that has not been my deal. And then uh, Pat knows that. And uh, yeah, we just kind of pile stuff up there. <laughs> we just we, we would go from this pile to that pile to this pile. And uh, but anyway. We went through a lot there when Pat was recovering. And she didn't <laughs> strangle you no, like she your dad? No, she, she, was, she was always, she understood, I think. She understood there wasn't gonna be a lot done there while she was gone. So, uh, JD, um, you know, I was talking to your uh, communications head, uh, Chris, the other day, and he said, you know, one of the best things you can say about JD is whenever anybody would spend time with him, they'd always walk away from it feeling better about themselves. Um, what made you most proud about him? I think I've been blessed to, to have two sons that honestly, you know, have never been trouble or concern me about anything. And to have them go through life the way they have, and um, it's just been such a blessing for us. And it was kind of like I had life kind of figured out. I mean, J.D. was going to run the race team. He was the president. He spoke in public. He had his own ministry, had his four kids. And so you kind of have life figured out for us. I'd say probably maybe five years ago, we started to see some changes in J.D. He just became quieter. and. Melissa, I think, picked up more things around the house. And so there was just some changes in his personality. You know, I thought maybe midlife crisis, whatever. You know, I, I went over at one point to Melissa and I said, you know, if JD wants to do something else, you know, that would be fine with me. And I, I remember when that day she said, I think it may be something physical. And when she said that, it kind of hit me, and we, we just immediately went to Mayo and got a diagnosis there, and it kind of started a journey, and it was, it, was a long, it was a long process. Coy was saying he used to go to J.D. all the time to ask for advice, and all of a sudden he felt like he was just getting blown off right. every time, and so he stopped doing it. 
Um, I think others uh, around the shop were wondering if JD was just starting to care less. When you guys went to the doctor, um, what was that initial feedback? When you have a degenerative brain disease, here's what you find, they don't know. <laughs> There's no cure. And they give you just a very vague diagnosis. There's not a lot of doctors want to go in that field because there's no cure. And so um, when we got that, I think it was just a process. We wanted to do every single thing we could to help JD to fight it. And it was just all of us trying to work our way through it. How did you see it initially affect him and how did it progress over time? I think he was just quieter. Before that, JD, when the meetings and everything was was strong and a part of him and um, had strong feelings about stuff. And so he just got quieter and wasn't as forceful. And I think he couldn't talk the last months. He would, I believe, break bones. Like, what did you see? He just gradually got things taken away from him. It was harder for him to talk. So eventually he lost the ability to communicate with us. Okay, that was hard. It was harder for him to use his hands and it became harder for him to walk. And so you have to do more to just help him. There's a cycle to life, uh, obviously, and parents aren't meant to uh, outlive their kids. How did you, as a parent, just come to terms with that prospect? I don't think you come to terms with it. I think it hurts so much. You can't even put it into words. And. I think everybody around him had such respect for JD. To this day, I got letters piled up I'm trying to answer from people that said all the little stories that JD, where he stepped out to help somebody in need or help a person here or help a person there. How much do those stories, hearing them, mean to you? I think, I think what came back to all of us is how many lives he touched. J.D. had his own ministry, his big uh, young life um, supporter. His dream was to help the inner city kids that could not afford a normal young life person to work with them. He wanted to fund that, and that's part of what <clears throat> we're doing now um, and people are contributing to. He opened a small restaurant here, and he gave the proceeds to charity, him and Melissa. His life really was touching all these different people and the way he went about things. And he wound up passing away on January 11th. Okay, J.D.'s number in football and racing and everything was 11. We had a um, J.D. service to honor his life we had here at Davidson College. There were over 3,000 people attended that service. and. Honestly, it may be one of the most touching things that I think anybody could witness. The next big race was Daytona. And so here's what happened with that race. J.D. found Denny Hamlin racing late models in Manassas, Virginia, when he was just a kid. Put him in a test, put him in a couple of cars, and signed him mm -hmm. to race for us. So he found Denny. Denny's number is 11. The car, FedEx car, is 11. JD's number is 11. And when JD got sick, Denny put JD 
over the door with his name, with Denny, on that car. And so <clears throat> the next race after J.D. had gone to be with the Lord was the Daytona 500. And so we go into that week with all the emotion and everything, and <clears throat> NASCAR wanted to honor J.D.'s life, and they said, what lap should we honor J.D.'s life on? And we all said 11. And so they honored J.D. on that lap. lap. Everybody stood up with banners and everything, and so there was a huge deal. Um, and if you think about it, Denny had not won a race the year before. The Daytona 500 is the hardest race to win, probably for us. We've been there 27 times. We'd won twice. And you're thinking to yourself, <laughs> the unbelievable part of this story would be if Denny could win this race. And it comes down towards the end. There's several restarts, all kinds of crazy things happening. And at the end of that race, <clears throat> Denny won. Okay, we had our second place was Kyle, and our Eric Jones was third. We went one, two, three, in a Daytona 500. I think that Daytona 500, the website, his service, all of that is just a testimony to what God can do in somebody's life, and it's a testimony to J.D., and so that's our dream to do the best we can to honor J.D. and keep that service on our website and hope that people go there. It's jdgibbslegacy.com, and we're having just letters and phone calls and stories, and it's coming back on J.D.'s life. Describe what you're feeling as Denny Hamlin crosses that finish line. There's a lot of people that witnessed that race. And when I see them or talk to anybody, they go, hey, you can't deny that God was um, overseeing that race and was a part of the way that thing played out. Even the guys racing against Denny said it. I think we were racing against more than cars tonight. And so it's just one of those rare things in life where um, you just see something that you know um, God oversaw that race and what happened. The um, day after he passes, you said you woke up with mixed emotions. I did because having seen J.D., he was so, such a, he took such good care of himself. And then to see all that just kind of gradually get taken away from him. Uh, I woke up the next morning and I just, I had mixed emotions. I missed him so much. You can't even put it into words. Um, and there's such a hole there. But I stopped and thought about it. In heaven, where he was with the Lord, he could eat a good meal, which he couldn't hear, use his hands, which he couldn't hear, go for a long run, and then visit with friends. How important has your faith been to you in all of this? It would be hard to get through something like this if you didn't really understand that. And it's sometimes you don't understand. I didn't understand. That was such a long, drawn-out process for J.D. You know, 
it was God's time and we don't understand why. But we do know this, that our time here on earth is very short. Our time in heaven is forever. It says God is creating a place for us. It's going to take us a thousand years to begin to appreciate heaven. That's how great it's going to be. What role does faith play in your life and how did you get to that place? I think, I think what you're, when you realize that you belong to the Lord, He's your Lord and Savior, then the promise is, in the end, everything's going to work out the best for us. And J.D., we know that that's heaven. There was suffering, which, you know, we, we definitely can have some suffering here on earth, but it's going to be short. It's going to be physical. And yet we have heaven, which is going to be spiritual and forever. And so um, I think your faith, uh, it is that fact that God knows everything that's in my life. When I look back, the financial mess, he took me all through that. There was a reason. The occupational struggle I had, there was a reason for that. I wind up getting to be a coach and on the race team. He walked through that and there was some heartache and all that. Here on earth, we inherit everything when we give our life to Christ. And Christ had two things. He had suffering and he had glory. We inherit both those. We get everything that he has when we give our life to him. It gives you great confidence, I think. Like in football, you got guys getting hurt, fumbles, all the stuff you can't control. Then I come to racing. It's exactly the same thing. God's got me just where he wants me. The two things I've been in, you can't control. There's stuff, people, all, you know, all the different things are happening. Just shut up and live your life because God's got you right where he wants you. So I think your question was your faith. And I think the, the fact God knows everything that's in my life. And so, you know, in the end, I'm going to be fine. Um, so the remaining moments we have, I'm going to talk to you about some of the charity and then a couple football moments and then we'll wrap up. Youth for Tomorrow, how did the idea come about for it? When I was coaching in Tampa, I got involved with some kids that were going through uh, the court system. You know, and you go down, try and help them or what have you and uh, spend some time with them. I go to Washington. I wind up being the head coach there. And I kind of felt the same thing. I felt like I was drawn towards kids, uh, particularly teenagers. So I'm sitting in my Sunday school class and I said, you know, I'd like to get involved with inner city kids in some way or kids going through the court system. I just said that. And the guy sitting in the a Sunday school class goes, that's my business. <laughs> he said, I have two condos downtown. I house kids that are going through the court system. And I said, really? So we started going down on Sunday mornings and, um, you know, spending a couple hours down there. And um, <clears throat> some traumatic things happened. There was one kid that came. This is always hits me. He was probably 15, 16, big kid, and he was going through the court system. And so I go down for about three Sundays, and the third Sunday I had um, one of the people that were supervising those kids had his daughter there, 
And she came in and was reading out of this book to me. And so then she left when we started our session. And after the session, <clears throat> this kid walked over to me. And I looked at him, and he was crying. And he goes, I wouldn't be here if I could read. He said, like that little girl? He said, I can't read. A job application, I have to take it home and have somebody else fill it out. And I was looking at this kid, and you know, 15 years old, and um, how did this happen? You know, he falls through the cracks, nobody to help take care of him. And I said, you know, we ought to build a youth home here in D.C. And if we did it here in D.C., a lot of other cities might see it and pattern themselves after it. And I said, we need to do it with private funds so we can teach godly principles. And today is a whole campus. It, um, youth for tomorrow and we have probably over a hundred kids on campus we have a mommy and me program for pregnant teens we have sex trafficking girls that are put there we have girls homes and it's a whole campus now what impact have you seen it having on the people it serves I think it's helped change kids lives we got kids who are working in the government we got kids that are working in uh, security at different places. We got kids that are teaching music in college. We got phenomenal stories. Uh, the Game Plan for Life's North Carolina Field Ministry Program. Um, I think it was two days before the Daytona 500. You are at an Orlando prison, uh, standing on a muddy field. It's drizzling, and you're speaking to the inmates. What do you remember saying and then witnessing as you're talking? I don't think I've ever spoke to a group that was so intense and looking right at me. And so it made a big impression upon me. And, you know, when we speak, um, I give my testimony in different cities. We started saying, if there's a prison there, after we speak in the morning, we'll go to the prison. Mm -hmm. And then I kind of <clears throat> had an unbelievable thing happen. I um, went to watch my grandson Jackson practice in a high school. And <clears throat> the line coach there, big old guy, he walks over and he said, hey, Joe, I just want to tell you something. He said, um, I gave my life to Christ at your very first game plan for life that you had here in Charlotte. And he goes, so I, I took your small group study that we had done here. He said, I kind of rewrote that. I went up to Salisbury Prison, and I've been having a prison ministry up there and taking guys through this study. And they give me like eight to ten guys, and I take them through this study uh, for ten weeks. And he says they, they're begging to get in it. They line up the prisoners. I said, Mark, that is unbelievable. And then he had a dream. He had gone to Angola Prison in Louisiana, where they had started a new program down there. Angola had all kinds of issues with crime and inside the prisons and all the things that are happening. And they started a program with the seminary there. They took lifers that weren't going to get out and took them through a four-year study in the seminary. Mm -hmm. They got their degrees in ministry. They then transferred them inside the state, and they started became ministers in those different prisons, and it totally had changed Angola. And it had 
become one of the pilot studies for a model prison. And so he saw that, <clears throat> came back up here and said he wants to start it. He started talking to people in the state and <clears throat> that's how our, our prison ministry started. To what extent any reservation, or to what extent have you had any reservations when you go into prisons and are talking to murderers or people that have been charged or convicted of really serious crimes? I honestly, I never felt <clears throat> ever threatened or, uh, like I said, when you go in there, all those guys, so many of them say, hey coach, thanks for coming. Really appreciate it. And um, what, what makes you want to teach um, people convicted of such serious crimes? You know, uh, what I really say to those prisoners, the, the real message that I have for them, I say, listen, I said, first of all, I wish I could exchange places with you. And they all kind of look at me and they go like this. I said, listen, I'm 78. <laughs> How much longer do I have here on earth? I said, you guys, most of you guys got 30, 40 years to live. I said, that's first. I said, second, you got to understand, <clears throat> I think what's important, we serve a God of second chances. So let's just look at the one man in the Bible that God said, this is a man after my own heart. It was David. What sins did David commit? Almost every sin. He lied, had sex sins, and in the end committed murder. And yet he asked God to forgive him. He went back and threw himself at God's feet. And God said, this is a man after my own heart. And so I said for all of you, hey, look, we all make mistakes in life. And the great thing about our God, we serve a God of second chances. And so you see so many, um, I mean, sharp, bright, squared away guys that made a mistake, you know. And so what you're wanting to say to them is, look, most of them are going to get out and have a life afterwards. And you hope that, you know, by giving their life to Christ, they can understand they're going to get a second chance and hopefully get out, <clears throat> have a huge impact on their family, their kids, which most of them obviously have kids and they're really concerned about them. These are guys <laughs> that are looking at life and they know that their life could end almost at any time. They're dead serious about it. And when you talk to them, I, I think they get it. And so the, that ministry, um, I really, really enjoy getting a chance to go in and speak to them. And I think he really makes a difference in their life. I believe that. You've said your life has been about picking the right people. Yeah. How so? <clears throat> well, first of all, if you think about coaching football, all right, what's the most important thing I did? It was pick the right 45 football players. If I pick the right guys, they're going to make me look good. <laughs> so that, that starts it off right there. And then the assistant coaches that you pick, you know, they're going to do most of the work. It's not going to be you, so they're going to make you look good. I came over here, and it's the same thing in racing. You pick the right people, they're going to make you look good. What do you look for? I mean, just in terms of qualities. 
first of all, is character. This always comes first. So when we got ready in the draft room with the Redskins, all the players are stacked by position. And I used to go in there, and they, if you had a little orange sticker, it meant that person had had an issue in his background, a character issue or something had um, taken place in his background. Character issues drive the person uh, to, I, I think, to be the right kind of team member that you want. And so characters first. And then I think the, the next thing is, you know, smarts is the person, football smart, racing smart. Can he do what you ask him to do? And in football, then the next thing becomes, to be truthful, mental toughness and physical toughness. Even if he's a quarterback, he needs to be really mentally tough. And basically, you're looking for the right people to be good team members. The crazy thing was our Super Bowl teams with the Redskins, one half of those teams were free agents, which meant they either weren't drafted by anyone, and you signed them as a free agent, okay, and they wound up being stars for you, or somebody else had cut them, but they fit into your team, and uh, you know, Many times it's not the most talented person, it's the person that's going to be the best team member. How do you think you get the most out of people? I think it's preparation from your standpoint in football. It was having the right game plans and putting people in the right position and then giving them the resources, working as hard as you can to make sure that you have the resources here for them so that they, in racing, so that they can be successful. And you have the best cars and the smartest people over there in designing our cars, building them. And then you gotta trust the people and the people will kind of make you go. Two moments in the NFL that tie into dealing with people. The first one being uh, Sean Taylor um, and what has, I, I think, been called by some, your finest month of coaching ever. The team was, you know, five and seven, a slew of starters, uh, had uh, been out due to injury. And uh, then you find out following a 2007 season game, Taylor's been murdered. Um, what do you say to the team when you first address it with them? He may have been the best athlete that I've ever been around. He was a running back in high school, scored all kinds of touchdowns. He came with us. He played safety. He was a, you know, a killer instinct guy, great tackler and everything, physical as all get out. He was a leader of the team. So when that happened, it devastated everybody. I don't think you know how to handle that. You just do the best you can. Some of the guys that were real close to him on the team got up and spoke. But generally, you just try and do the best you can to manage that. We came back to play uh, the very next week, and you could tell our guys just they weren't into it. It was, it was hard. It affected everybody. And then we had to win four in a row to get in the playoffs. And I said, those are probably four of the best games I ever had a football team play. We played the Bears on a Thursday night, and we beat the Bears. We went to Minnesota 
and played them up there, and they were a playoff-type team, beat them up there. We came back and played the Giants at, at the Giants, which is really hard for us, and beat the Giants up there, and then beat Dallas at our place to win four in a row to get in the playoffs. Uh, that team kind of came together. They wanted to do it for Sean, I think, and, you know, we're driven. But it was really a special time. Joe Theismann, you had a front row seat when he broke his leg on mm -hmm. Monday Night Football. Um, what do you say to him that makes him laugh in the heat of the moment? It's kind of interesting because he was kind of screaming at everybody, and he, he wasn't, I felt like, in a lot of pain. You know, so I just kind of looked at him. I tried to <laughs> make a joke. I'm not sure it was a smart thing to do, but I said, well, it's a fine mess you've left me in. <laughs> like that. He goes, holy yeah. He was ranting and raving. He was after everybody. He was screaming at Taylor. Everybody talks about that and still talks about it. Just a horrible accident there for him and to break his leg like that. I really messed that up, too. Joe and I had gone through a lot of stuff and won the Super Bowl and kind of went through a lot of stuff together. And I was so caught up that week in coaching and getting the game plan ready and all that, I did not visit him in the hospital, and I should have done that. That was a big mistake on my part. And uh, so I always felt bad about that. In the mid-'90s, you were quoted as saying, I can't see going back to that structured existence. Flexibility is in, and I never knew life could be so happy in regards to if you'd ever go back to coach again. Oh, yeah. Um, yeah. What changed? I think a lot changed. It was 11 years. Uh, we were totally focused on the race team. JD was running the race team. Everything was going great. He was the president, and everything had gone good there. Coy, and coming out of school, at first worked in racing and everything, but then said, Dad, I'd like to, and say, you know, he said he would like to go maybe coach. I think Coy would make a great coach. So he was thinking about going back into coaching. And that kind of indirectly nudged so you? So that kind of nudged me along. And then everything was kind of in place. I had grandkids at that point. None of them had seen me coach or be around football in the NFL. I thought that would be fun for them. And so uh, I sat down with my wife in the library, and, and so I had notes, and I said, I need to talk to you about something. <laughs> and so I started through all those issues. You know, JD's running a race, everything's going great. She's like this, looking at me and looking at me and going, you know, what's he going to say? And at the end, I said, what do you think about going back to coaching? And she goes, just like this, you're going to ruin your good name. She went just like that. And so the first year we went 6 and 10, I said, we're halfway there. <laughs> we're going to ruin our name. But she was all in when we, when we talked about it. And I fully expected to stay there for a full five years. But four years into it, a lot of things took place. Taylor got leukemia. I went to, we had a birthday party video, and I realized I wasn't even in the video. And there were a lot going on family-wise. And so, you know, I went four years, and I said, hey, Dan, I think I need to go back. When you came into the job, you were the fifth head coach in five years. How did owner Dan Snyder recruit you? No, he, he didn't. It was more me when I made up my mind 
I kind of sent word through somebody to him and said, you know, uh, there may be something I would consider. And so met with him and we talked over everything from, you know, picking players, to all how would we go about, how would it be organized and everything. We had two big meetings. And I think it became obvious to me, I said, hey, look, you know, I, I think Dan is somebody that will, as an owner, support me and give me everything. And that's exactly what happened when we were there. How did um, the challenge of coming back compare to what you would have expected? I think, I think everybody, they kind of asked me, what do you think's changed in the NFL? And so I told them everything. I felt like everything's changed with the exception of one thing, human nature. People never change. 2,000 years ago, the same things that encouraged us, discouraged us, are going to be the same things today. And so I felt like dealing with people, which is the most important aspect, that wasn't going to change. And it didn't. We come into the world, what? Self-centered. And what you're going to ask people to do is sacrifice their individual goals for the goals of the team. And that's hard. Only certain people can do that. But when you find those people, you're going to be a winner in team sports. And so it's a study of human nature. Get the right guys together and go get it. I'll end with this question. Um, how about the most satisfying experience from your career to date? The most satisfying thing that happened to me was the Daytona 500, where everything that took place in JD's life that led up to that. And it was everything about NASCAR, honoring J.D., it was Denny, J.D. finding Denny, the 11 number, everything that took place that night. <clears throat> and for have all those circumstances take place, and what a miracle that would be to win that race, I felt like God kind of oversaw that and was a part of that night. And I felt like J.D. had the best seat in the house. And I said that was the greatest victory I've been a part of. And I've been blessed to have a lot of good experiences and great wins, but that was the most rewarding thing for me. And uh, I don't I think everybody in the winner's circle was crying. Thank you very much. You bet. Okay. That's it for my chat with Joe Gibbs. For more from our taping, including traveling with Gibbs to a prison to see his ministry program in action, go to youtube.com slash Graham Bensinger. And as always, before you go, please leave us a rating and review. Thanks again for listening.